0: You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you five messages J. Oswald Sanders presented at MBI Missions Conference 1987. J. Oswald Sanders was General Director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship and the author of more than 40 books on the Christian life. Now, here is J. Oswald Sanders on Today in the Word radio. To me, it is a great privilege to be asked to speak at this conference Moody Bible Institute, which I think without any doubt has made the greatest contribution to world missions of any single institution in the world. And that is to me a great privilege. I'm so glad also to have the opportunity of speaking to other young people uh, because I've sat where you sat, I haven't forgotten what it feels like to be the the way you feel now. I've had the same kind of failures as you have and some of the same successes as you have. And looking back over all these years, if I had my life to live over again, I would, without any hesitation or reservation, say, Lord, let me be a missionary. Would you read with me Three or four verses from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Verse 35. You know, all the missionary passages are very familiar. We know them all. But there's always something fresh that can come out of the Word of God. There's, There's a vitality about it. And I do trust that tonight this passage will say something to you that will be fresh. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Sit down, young man. When God intends to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help. That was the encouraging word that young William Carey received from one of his ministerial brethren when he had been making an impassioned plea on behalf of the unevangelized peoples of the world. But God didn't do it without William Carey. He used William Carey without much education, certainly without formal theological education. He used that young man to commence the modern era of missions and what a man he became. To think that he, when he died, had given to the world 24 different languages and dialects, part of the Word of God. When I was in India, I discovered that he also was at the same time The leading botanist of India. If you think you're hard-worked, you think of William Carey and how he managed to squeeze in with all that linguistic work and all the preaching and teaching, and then as a sideline, he became the leading botanist of India. God has made it perfectly clear that he did not intend or purpose to reach the heathen people of the world Apart from his church. And he's going to use his church. And that's why we're here tonight, because we want to be associated with him in a new and in a deeper way as he reaches out to those who are without Christ. The conference motto, I'm sure, was chosen with care and with prayer the crisis of the crucial. No past generation has known the meaning of the word crisis to the degree we have. No past generation has ever faced the nuclear crisis. This is something that is entirely new to the world. And as you look around world conditions, we move from one crisis to another you have your national crises and they're coming up all the time. There are political crises, economic crises, social crises. We have war and all kinds of things. Crisis is the order of the day and the whole world's involved in it. In my boyhood, between 1902 and 1914, there were no wars. It was probably the most peaceful time in all history. But what is it like now? Since the Second World War there have been a hundred wars and you know several that are going on now. Crisis after crisis. The politicians seem to have no solutions. All they manage to do is to roll back the present crisis until it gets bigger in the future and we've got a larger crisis to face in the future and that is certainly the position where we are now. The word crisis in the the Chinese language, the ideogram for crisis is dangerous opportunity. And when you come to think of it, that's a very good illustration of what a crisis is. To the alert Christian, the mounting crises that are in the world today are wonderful opportunities of presenting Christ. In Matthew 16:18 our Lord made it very clear that he was going to build his church on a battlefield. We'd like to have it everything nice and quiet, but he knew very well that when he launched his little church that the mass forces of darkness would be opposed. And so he said on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will be powerless to prevail against her. My, that was a strong statement, and it's still true. He knew that he was going to build his church on a battlefield and that the church would, would meet to, with tremendous opposition. But he encouraged the little band with the assurance that victory was certain. didn't matter how strong the powers of darkness were, they would be entirely unable to overcome the church or to prevail against it. Crises create opportunities. Very wonderful during the, the Vietnamese war while the battle was going on, do you know that in three years from 1966 to 1969 with Mount the escalating war going on, The church in Vietnam doubled from 40,000 to 80,000. The Lord builds his church on the battlefield. Think of China. I was in China 40 years ago, and then there were under 1 million communicant members of the Christian church. Today there are 50 million, and that church has been built in times of war, and repression and and, uh, martyrdom. Christ is building his church and the opportunities that come to us today are in the midst of these uh, unsettled and uncertain conditions. Missionary work is spiritual warfare. We needn't have any illusions about that. It is warfare. You heard from Jim Morris about the the warfare that went on in North Thailand. That was no easy battle. It was something that required tremendous stamina and courage and endurance. And that that is characteristic of very much missionary work. When a missionary goes into an area that has been occupied by the devil for a long while, that's a declaration of war. And what happens? The adversaries are invisible, but they're tremendously real. The devil is a dirty fighter. There are no holds barred. And in total war, there are casualties, alas. And so there are casualties in missionary work, and we must face it. The China Inland Mission in the year nineteen hundred. In the Boxer Rebellion, 59 of our missionaries and many of our children gave up their lives in order that the gospel may be preached and the church may be planted in the inland provinces of China. And those missionaries played their part in the harvest that is being gathered in China today. The word crisis has been defined as a decisive moment or turning point, a time for deciding something. Well, I think that's what this conference is. It's a time for deciding something. And I'm not speaking only to young people, I'm speaking to older people. It's a time for deciding something. We are here in the interests of the spread of the kingdom of God throughout the world. The word crucial comes from crooks, a cross, and it has something of the same meaning. It's something decisive, just like a, a, a sign at the crossroads, a signpost. If you want to arrive at your destination, it's crucial that you take the right turn or you'll never get there. And tonight and in these days, we'll be thinking about the crisis of the crucial in missionary work. We'll be called upon to decide what is crucial and urgent and important and what is secondary and peripheral. We'll be called upon to decide what is good and what is best. And I think that's the thing that is enshrined in that motto. Thoughtful reading of scripture leaves us in no doubt that cross-cultural missions are not an optional extra for the Christian, but they are crucial to the life and health of the church. No church that does not have a missionary program is a healthy New Testament church. It is absolutely essential and crucial that the church should have the missions at its heart especially in his post-resurrection ministry during those important 40 days, the Lord left his followers in no doubt where their responsibility lay. He compressed his whole missionary program into one verse. You shall receive power, the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's my conviction that we may well have reached the crisis point in missions when the final assault on the ramparts of hell is to be launched. May I say that again? It is my conviction that we may well have reached the crisis point when the final assault on the ramparts of hell is to be launched. And if it is, do you want to be part of it? I'm sure you will. No previous generation has been granted the privileges that we have. No previous generation has had the tools put in its hand for the evangelization of the world like our generation. And all who deeply love the Lord and long for his coronation will want to march with him toward this glorious consummation. The Lord made each generation responsible for the evangelization of its own generation. Now I don't know about you, those of us who are older have not much reason to be proud with what we've done. I wonder if the present generation is going to rise and is going to do what we fail to do. I do trust they will. Dr. A.B. Simpson in one of his hymns wrote this verse. They're passing, passing, fast away, a hundred thousand souls a day in Christless guilt and gloom. O Church of Christ, what wilt thou say when in that awful judgment day they charge thee with their doom? The evangelization of each generation by each generation of Christians. Now if this generation is is to do its task, we will reach the final frontiers what are the final frontiers I think they're expressed in the book in the Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 where it says that there will appear before the throne people out of every tribe and people and language and nation they'll stand there that's those are the final frontiers that's why Wycliffe has been seeking to take, get, take the language, get the language into every tribe and people, because this is the, the consummation toward which we are working. This past century has seen some wonderful advances, and we must not underestimate what the Holy Spirit has achieved. When we think of the vast undone, We must not underestimate what has been done. And throughout the world today, there are more people turning to Christ than at any time in history, very many more. It's estimated that in Africa today, anything from 15 to 20,000 people a day are turning to Christ. And Dr. uh, Bishop Stephen Neal, a great missiologist, said it is by no means impossible that by the year 2000, Africa will be 50% Christian and that Africa will have the greatest concentration of Christians in the world. Not America or Britain or anywhere else, but Africa, which in my boyhood was called darkest Africa and yet is going to be brightest Africa. How wonderful. We must not underestimate what God is doing, but at the same time, We've got to be realistic and face the tremendous crisis which humanity and which missions face today. What is behind this crisis? I think Revelation 12.12 gives us a suggestion as to what is behind the crisis. Listen. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. I believe that we are seeing the fulfillment of that in our day. I believe that in part explains the intensification of all the evil and all the things that are going on in our midst. How is it that in spite of all that's done we see our nation slipping, slipping, slipping When I was a boy, the uh, map of the world was splotched with red all over the British Commonwealth. Now there's one little dot off the coast of Europe. We're seeing just now everything America seems to do, it it doesn't seem to work out. And we're seeing the axis slipping away from the west and moving toward the east. We are living in an hour and in a day of crisis. And uh, we want to be alert. To know what our part is, the devil is furious because he's lost his place as the accuser of the brethren, he's been cast down, and now he knows that forebodes his final defeat. He knows his time is short. Do you know that we're living in the greatest era of martyrdom for Christ in all history? Because we live in such comfortable circumstances, it doesn't affect us. We don't realize what's going on. But there are more people being martyred for Christ's sake today than in the er days of the early church. It doesn't cost us very much, but it costs very much to those to whom we preach. And that makes it a solemn thing to bring the gospel to them. Because we're asking some of them to become martyrs. This is the kind of world in which we live. No, there's a corollary to that. If the devil's time is short, then our time is short. If he's in great fury, we ought to be in great urgency. What is the crucial need in this crisis hour? On one occasion, when John Ruskin, the poet and art critic, was addressing a company of artists, he said to them that a great artist needed three qualities. He needed an eye to see, a heart to feel, and a hand to perform. An eye to see the essence and the beauty of the scene that he wishes to paint. A heart to feel and to register its appeal. And then a hand That is gifted to perform the task of transferring what his eye has seen and his heart has felt to canvas. And I believe that these three qualities are essential for us, every one of us, missionary or non-missionary. Whether we're going to stay at home or whether we go to the mission field, we need these three qualities. An eye to see, a heart to feel, and a hand to perform. Eyes that look are common. Eyes that see are rare. One person sees nothing. Another person sees an opportunity. We need eyes to see the spiritual need of the people round about us and the people who are in lands afar. We're surrounded by people in deep spiritual need. Every day we rub shoulders on them. But isn't it strange that we're so insensitive? It doesn't seem to move us very much. Why is it? We need to be stirred. We need to be awakened. We need to see things from Christ's viewpoint. How did Jesus see the world of his day? The passage we read, I think, gives us a little insight. It says, when he saw the crowds, it was a crowded world, In Jesus' day, at least it seemed that. But what about the world of today? When Jesus was there, as far as can be estimated, there would be 250 million people in the world. Today, you know that this year, you heard it probably on TV, that the five billionth baby is going to be born somewhere in the world today, 20 times as many people on earth as when the Lord Jesus was here. If it was crowded then, how does he see it today? And we see a crowded world. Virgil Gerber of the IFMA estimated that half the people who have ever lived on this globe are alive today. My young brothers and sisters, do you realize that on your generation there lies the awesome responsibility, the wonderful privilege of bringing the gospel to half the people who have ever lived on this globe? What a a responsibility and yet what a wonderful possibility. Jesus saw the crowds helpless, harassed. Bewildered, struck down by cruelty, by injustice, by oppression, by hunger, by poverty. And the world's like that today. One third of the world today is undernourished. We have so much that we don't think very much about it, but they do. Jesus saw them helpless. He saw them shepherdless, as sheep without a shepherd. I come from a country where we have 70 million sheep. I've not counted them, but they tell me that's right. (laughs) I know what sheep are like. They are the stupidest animals you can imagine. They've got no weapon of offense. They've got no weapon of defense. They've got no sense of direction. If they get out of a field, they'll never find their way back. They will be lost unless someone goes and finds them. And Jesus saw the crowds as sheep without a shepherd. Nobody caring for their spiritual destitution. What what effect did it have on him? He was moved with compassion. You see, he had an eye to see the spiritual need of these people. But he had a heart to feel as well. He was moved with compassion. We see crowds. I'm talking to my own heart. We see crowds, but how do we see them? Do we see them through the eyes of the Lord Jesus? Every one of them lost unless they believed in Christ. Every one of them unable to improve their own condition unless somebody goes to them. And this is where the missionary call and the missionary responsibility comes in. A heart to feel. The word compassion doesn't mean to feel sorry for people or to pity them. You can do that without having compassion on them. I'll never forget the first time my wife and I visited Bombay. We arrived by plane about 2 o'clock in the morning and we were walking along the street to our comfortable hotel. It was a cold night, but as we walked along the street we had to step over bodies or go around bodies. There they were lying in their muslin garments, nothing to cover them. And there we went and wended our way through these people. And I felt desperately sorry for them. I pitied them. But I didn't have compassion on them in the sense in which this word is used here because I didn't do anything about it. I don't know what I could have done. But to have compassion means far more than to be sorry. The word means to suffer together with Jesus so identified himself with these people that he suffered with them. You know the hymn we sing, he took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. That's compassion. And then he did something about it. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. I read an article Many years ago, and the title of it has stuck in my mind ever since. The title was The Curse of a Dry Eyed Christianity. The Curse of a Dry Eyed Christianity. How dry eyed we are. You know, I, I'm confident that TV has done something to us that has damaged our emotions. We look at the most terrible scenes. We see all kinds of things enacted before our eyes. We're shocked for the moment. And we say, how terrible, and we shut our eyes and turn to the next program. You see, we become superficial. I think our emotions are damaged, and that's one reason why we're so dry-eyed when it comes to some, of, some spiritual things. Dr. A.W. Tozer in one of his very pungent statements and he used to make a lot of pungent statements he said there is today a pursuit of irresponsible happiness among us evangelical Christians. He said most of us would rather be happy than feel the wounds of other people's sorrows. Shall I say that again? Most of us would rather be happy than feel the wounds of other people's sorrows. But our Lord's compassion was not dry eyed. Listen, when he drew near to the city, he wept over it. I was standing outside the walls of Jerusalem with my Arab guide. And he pointed across the valley to a little building on the hillside with a cupola over the top. He said, you see that building over there? Yes. He said, that is the place where Jesus was reputed to have wept over the city of Jerusalem. And I tried to picture him sitting there and looking out over the roofs of that city and seeing with his omniscient eye all the sin that was going on therein the plotting against his life. And he looked down 40 years ahead when the streets of that city were going to run with blood, when a million Jews were going to be slain. And as he looked over the city, his heart overflowed its banks and salty tears streamed down his face. When Jesus saw the city, he wept over it. What a conception, a weeping God Can you imagine the incredulity of the angels when they saw the one who controls the universe there with scalding tears running down his face because he saw the impending judgment that was coming on that city? No other religion has a a weeping god. The Greek gods and the Roman gods came down to earth to enjoy themselves. God came down to earth in Christ in order that he might die for us sinful men and sinful women. Paul partook of the spirit of his master. When he was speaking to the Ephesians in Acts 20, listen to what he said. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each one of you night and day with tears. That's not dry eyed is it? That was a pastor's heart. No wonder things happened when Paul was around. And yet we are so dry eyed. We need to ask God to restore Some moisture to our Christianity. Paul had not only an eye to see. He had not only a heart to feel. He had a hand to perform. Paul did something about it. You know during his journeys. He traveled in the record. We don't know what what else he did. But the record is at least 10,000 miles. Mostly on foot. Taking the good news from one place to Another. You remember what the people said? These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. He did something about it. When you come to think of what he suffered in the course of his ministry, it's incredible. May I read to you what, what the, uh, Paul said about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He said, are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in the country, at sea. In danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who'd be a missionary? You see, Paul had a heart to feel, but he did something about it. He didn't just allow the emotion to slip over him and then do nothing. I believe, my dear friends, that this is something the Lord wants to work in us. He wants us to not only to feel, but he wants us to do something about it so that we can see the, the uh, movement of the Spirit in the world around us. Frederick Booth Tucker was a, an Indian high court judge. He was a very brilliant man, and... He could have had any—probably he could have had one of the highest positions in the civil service in India because he was on the way up. But he met the Lord and got converted. And after a while, as he grew in his Christian life, he thought, I don't want to spend all my time settling petty cases and money and so on. I want to win people to Christ. And so he resigned from his position— It was at the time when the Salvation Army was in its early heyday and revivals were wherever they went. He went home to England and uh, he offered himself to General Booth to be a missionary. And General Booth uh, accepted him and he went back to India and he had the language so he was able to start missionary work right away without any trouble. But he worked away and nothing happened. Nobody seemed to be very interested Nobody got converted And he, he got despairing And then he, he made a, a resolution He said I will go round like one of their holy men I'll just go round dressed in a muslin dhoti like they do I'll go round with a, a beggar's bowl And I'll live on what they give me If they give me something to eat and drink Well I'll get it and if not I'll do without I'll go barefoot He got another man to go with him, and they set off. They went from village to village. Sometimes the people would give them food. Sometimes they wouldn't. But on this occasion of which I speak, he'd gone to a village, and uh, they would give them neither food nor drink, nor would they have anything to do with them. And it was the middle of the afternoon. The sun was burning. They were discouraged, and they threw themselves down under a tree and went to sleep. But when they woke up, they found the whole village was surrounding them. And uh, when the men saw that these two men were awake, one man, the spokesman, came forward. He said, we have been very evil people. When you came here, we didn't want to hear your message. We didn't want to have anything to do with you. But while you were asleep, we thought we would come up closer and see what you looked like close up. So we did and they said this man said when I saw your feet a mass of blisters I thought these must be holy men. If they would walk around on feet like that where every step must have been an agony then they must be holy men and we must listen to what they have to say. So he said we brought you food and drink and after you have refreshed yourself We want to hear your message. And what happened? Did anything happen? 25,000 people turned to the Lord in that area. And what was it? It wasn't anything they said, was it? It was they showed compassion. Compassion. They were not used to walking without shoes. And as they walked the hot roads of India, their feet were blistered. And yet they kept on going because they loved Christ. My brothers and sisters, here was a man who had an eye to see, a heart to feel, and a hand to perform. Are we going to ask the Lord and say, Lord, give me a heart like that? Give me the anointed eye so that I can see and discern the spiritual need of people here and beyond the sea and enable me to do something about it. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message J. Oswald Sanders presented at MBI Missions Conference 1987. J. Oswald Sanders was General Director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship and the author of more than 40 books on the Christian life. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at Moody Audio.